Now, I once, uh, when introduced, uh, was talking about my children. I said I have five daughters, four of which are sons. <laughs> and a lady afterwards uh, told me, don't you ever do that again, because I didn't listen to anything else you said the whole time, because <laughs> I was trying to figure that out. We also have five uh, grandchildren here with us. This is a wonderful conference. It brings uh, so many of us from uh, so far away, and we get to see people we've heard about but have never actually met in person. So, for example, Trevor, uh, we've been praying for for a long time. It was wonderful to hear his testimony, wonderful to meet his family in person. It was a delight to be together. And Joe, we could tag team uh, forever, working together with the young people uh, on the fly because they don't let you prepare. They just ask questions. Uh, it was uh, very nice uh, uh, to work in tandem with Joe. Uh, I'd be happy to travel with you, Joe, and, 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 and uh, continue to tag team uh, with you. Uh, we need to pray for the future of the conference. The National Park is making it uh, increasingly difficult. Uh, I don't know if that's the intervention of uh, our enemy or not, uh, but I don't know if you noticed last night I was going just fine until we were talking about the actual terms of the gospel, and suddenly a swarm of mosquitoes were attacking me, and I was slapping myself all over my head and my neck, and I was thinking, like, I don't know if demons control mosquitoes or not, but that certainly was uh, coincidental at the, at the moment of uh, the explanation of the gospel that so many mosquitoes would be attacking me who were not attacking before. We really do need to pray for uh, the spiritual work uh, that's done in the conference. Uh, it's an it's a amazing thing about the hardness of our hearts and the need of the Spirit to soften our hearts and to awaken us to what the Lord uh, would say to us. It's not so much what Joe and I are saying as we're seeking to be uh, tools of the Spirit. It's, it's the work of the Spirit uh, in our hearts that is the most important work. And so we are praying that we can cooperate uh, with the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. I told you I was a college professor most of my life. Uh, my students uh, often would ask me, can I turn my assignment in late? And I said, well, of course you can. Uh, I had profs uh, that were gracious to me, and so, uh, yes, I will accept late work. Of course, it will receive uh, a due penalty for being late, but it's still doable. It's much better to turn your work in late than to not have done it at all. So once again, I'd like to see a show of hands. How many of you have now completed the homework I assigned yesterday morning? Yeah, well, okay. Yeah, all right, okay. You're down to C students. And <clears throat> I'll ask again tomorrow morning and see if you're doing a little better. We are in uh, 1 John chapter 2, uh, beginning with verse 18. And at this point, John goes right to the point of the problem of the teachers that they have been listening to. And he describes them in the most clear terms. And he says straight out, don't be so gullible. Uh, we are, uh, my family anyway, who we hang with a lot, uh, there's 16 of us here, are in housekeeping within view of Yosemite Falls. And the very first night we were here, we're sitting around the campfire, and I think it was my son who says, 
as it got dark, look, they turned off the falls. And everybody turned around to look. <laughs> and Clay was telling me that's genetic and they inherited that from me, that I'm gullible and so are my kids now gullible. But what he says about us listening to teachers is he says you can't just open your mouth like a baby bird and let them put in your mouth whatever they want to give you. Uh, You have to be those noble Bereans who search the scripture to see if it really is true. You can't be gullible. 1 John 2 verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist, there is no definite article there, is coming, even now many Antichrists, in the sense of like little precursors to that eventual uh, Antichrist that we read about in the revelation of Jesus Christ, now many Antichrists has arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out in order that they might be shown that they all are not of us. And I said because of the confusion in these churches as to who are the right teachers that are going to give us the truth, who are going to lie to us. Uh, Who are those who think they're saved when they're not? Who are the backslidden ones among us? And who are the confused Christians? He gives a series of tests. And the tests are harsh. And he wants everyone in these churches to go through the sieve of these tests to find out where you are with God. He is certainly going to exclude these false teachers because they can't pass these tests. For example, they deny the incarnation. They deny that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. They deny their problem with sin. And very specifically, he says the most central defining characteristic of what it means that God is in your life and has changed you is that he will place love in your hearts for your brothers. And by saying, look how they treated you, they walked out on you. He's saying, they don't love you. Why were you ever listening to them? When we listen to teachers, we should listen to teachers who teach the truth, and we should compare it with what we know from the revealed word of God. But we should also see in them that God has a hold of their lives and that they're demonstrating the work of the Spirit in their lives. And the clearest declaration of God's work in their lives, as we'll see deeper into the book, is do you love the brothers? And the kind of people who'd walk out on you obviously do not know you or love you. He then says, it is not rocket science for you to figure this out. It is not that difficult. You can do this because the Holy Spirit is in you and can guide you and help you to be discerning. If you get confused, 
Ask the Spirit to guide you. You think the Spirit's going to lie to you? No, the Spirit's going to want to protect you. So he says, verse 20, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. He's saying, trust God to guide you in recognizing good leaders who take care of you, who shepherd you, who love you, who protect you, who feed you, compared to these people who abuse you, who take advantage of you, who want to rule over you, who want to dominate you, who want to control you, who teach you lies that Jesus Christ is not God come in the flesh, who tell you that sin is not a problem, and who do not exhibit love. Verse 21, I've not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, because no lie is of the truth. He's saying, you have heard truth, cling to that truth, and examine everything else in light of the truth that you've already received. Who's the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. It is a huge problem for us to understand God as Trinity. To understand he is one God, yet he exists in three persons. Furthermore, it is difficult for us to understand how God could join with human beings and be both God and man at the same time. And frankly, too many people who think themselves to be too wise in their own estimation don't take God at his word in his declaration, I am one yet three, and my son is the God-man. And they overthink it, and they try to solve the problem for God. So Serenthus, the heretic, who had confused these people who taught in these churches, tried to solve the incarnation by saying that Jesus Christ is just a human being. And when he was baptized, the logos, Greek word for the word from John 1, the logos came upon the man Jesus Christ and gave him divine power and leading, but then abandoned him just before the crucifixion and allowed him to be defeated and to die alone and abandoned. Now, why would he come up with stupid stuff like this? I think he's influenced by Satan, but he's also a very smart man who's trying to overthink things and trying to solve the problem of the Incarnation. Polycarp, a disciple of the Apostle John who wrote this, writes in his writings that once John went into the public bath in Ephesus, the city where he was a leader in the church there. By the way, they didn't have baths in their homes. There were public baths, and you wanted to bathe, you'd go to the public bath. It was a place where you'd see everybody. John goes into the public bath, comes right back out again, and he says, Serenthus is in there, the heretic. Let's get out before the ceiling and the walls cave in on him. That's how much John hated Serenthus for the lies that he was telling. We have to be people who are discerning, and we have to say, if God says he is three in one, let God be God. 
If God says that his son is both God and man at the same time, let God be God. In fact, he has actually left us with a fleshly nature that is still unredeemed so that we have two natures within ourselves, a divine one as a believer, a fleshly nature, and we know what it's like to operate out of two natures. Do you think that's accidental, or do you think that God gives us insight, even with our own experience, of what it was like for the God-man to have two natures, in a sense, a godly nature, a human nature? And you can see, even in the Garden of Gethsemane prayer, that humanly speaking, he wishes that this cup could pass from him, But in his prayer, he's aligning the humanness with the divine leading that this is the plan of the Father. And he says, not my will, but thine be done. You see, we should not try to overthink these things as much as take God at his word and say, this is what you say, I will believe it, even though it's difficult for me to understand how that would work. God has given us in our own human experiences, insights into unity and diversity and complexity in individuality. Why is man male and female? Why do we need each other? Why, when we produce a child, do we then learn selflessness? As three of us form a family, I think these are pictures to give us a hint of the way the Trinity functions, just so we'd understand what does it mean to be a father and a son? What does it mean to love someone else sacrificially? When I was young, before I'd ever had any children, I read Genesis 22, the story of Abraham offering up his son Isaac I read it in an academic way because I didn't know how to feel that. Once I became a father, Genesis 22 was hard for me to read because it hurt me in a way that it didn't hurt me before I was a father. Now I've come to understand it so much better and appreciate it so more, so much more because there is a connection within me to understand it. He says, you have an anointing from the Holy One. You all know I've not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you know it, because no lie is of the truth. Who's the liar? The one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. Remember, even the Pharisees would say, well, we're aligned with God the Father. And he was saying, there is no other access to the Father But through me, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And besides, if you knew my Father, you would recognize me because you would recognize his voice in me. Verse 24, as for you, let abide in you what you've heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will abide in his Son and in this Father. Isn't it interesting how so many people start out in Christianity and start overthinking it to the point where they get very creative and they start 
experiencing disappointments in their life and they say, I prayed and I expected God to answer and he did not answer what I expected. And therefore, I will stop trusting him. Folks, name me. I I can't even think one. Name me a character in the scripture who didn't face adversity, difficulty, disappointment, heartache, hardship. Name me one. I can't think of anybody. So if we experience hardship and difficulty and trial and disappointment, are we any different than any other person you've seen in the scripture? It's mysterious that God allows things to happen to us that while we're experiencing them, we don't understand them. Go back to the story I just mentioned, Abraham and Isaac. It is crazy that God would ask Abraham to sacrifice his son. That's unheard of among believers. Unbelievers will sacrifice their children to Moloch or something like that. But no believer in the one true God would ever sacrifice his son. It makes no sense at all. In fact, as I read the story, I go through that and I say, why did you do it, Abraham? Why did you obey him? Why did you get up early? to obey him? Why'd you go fast to get there? Why didn't you dilly-dally all the way there and overthink it and say, maybe I didn't understand him correctly? Well, what's so funny in the Genesis 22 account is it never tells us what was in Abraham's mind. I have to get all the way to the writer of the, to the Hebrews before he says, I'll tell you what he was thinking in the power of the spirit. The spirits revealed this to me. He imagined that since Isaac was the son of promise, and we'd already know it's not Ishmael. We tried that thing. That did not work. It's not Ishmael. It's Isaac. That God is going to have to raise him from the dead because he's going to make a great nation of my progeny through Isaac. Now, that imagination comes from nowhere. Who has ever been raised from the dead at this point? No one. So where did Abraham come up with that? Deductively, he said, if I have to sacrifice Isaac, and yet Isaac is the chosen son, and through him, an entire race will be built. How could it possibly be unless he raises them from the dead? And so I'll trust him. Isn't it amazing how God stresses us to teach us spiritual lessons we would never learn any other way. We all think stress is a very bad thing. Well, some stress is bad, but good stress is good for us. And if we're spiritually stressed, let him work that out in our lives and let him work it through us and let's see what God wants to do in our lives through the stress that we're experiencing. It's happened to everybody. I can't think, and you can help me if you can think of some characters in which they never had any problems, never had any stress, never had any difficulty, never had any disappointment. They all have had that. Let that abide in you which you've heard from the beginning. Talking about the beginning of their experience in knowing God. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise which he, made, he himself made to us. Eternal life. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. And as for you, the anointing which you receive from him abides in you, 
and you have no need for anyone to teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. Now, he's not saying you don't need to study to know the word of God. Yes, you should study to know the word of God. But what he's saying is, let the Holy Spirit and his empowerment within you teach you truths from the word of God. Don't be a baby bird with your mouth wide open saying, give me anything you want. Bring me anything you want. I'll believe anything. No! Let the Holy Spirit guide you into the truth. Abide in him. If you wonder why he keeps calling people little children, he's an old man at this point. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Do you want to be caught off guard? Do you want to have the Lord return and you not be living for him? Do you want to be following falsehood and false teachers when the Lord returns? No, not at all. So be ready for the Lord's return at any time. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. And consequently, he says, these leaders are not living righteously. Therefore, don't listen to them. Now, we as human beings are not perfect and we're going to sin. And you know that Paul take, Paul, excuse me, John takes uh, sin very seriously. You saw that earlier in the book. He says, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But when we sin, we confess our sins, 1 John 1, 9, and we have an advocate on our behalf, Jesus Christ the righteous. But these teachers you've been listening to are so flagrantly sinning, you have to ask yourself, why have you been listening to them? And we should require of our leaders, our teachers, that they live lives in which they can be examples to us as to how to live. Not one of us will be perfect, but all of us should be seeking to be pleasing to the Lord. And when we sin, we should confess those sins and receive that family forgiveness and to go on. But the test that he now gives and explains in detail is the test that sin cannot be the defining characteristic of our lives. We as Christians are not to tolerate sin in our lives. It's like asking the question, how much poison can I eat before I get sick? And the answer is, that's for rats. That's not for you. Don't eat that. Listen to how he teaches and take him at his word. Stop overthinking it. You're not a rocket scientist. Just listen to what he says and believe what he says. Verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, pure, holy, good, you know everyone that also who practices righteousness is born of him. 
I'm reading from the New American Standard. You might have a little bit different of translations. But in the original text, the verbs are in the present tense. And the verb to do is before that verb. So, for example, when it says the one who practices righteousness, it's more literally the one who does righteousness continuously, that person is one who truly has been changed of God and born of him. He's speaking of a lifestyle consistency of living a life that's pleasing to the Lord. As I was describing that he teaches us by teaching us what God is like, in his opening salvo is God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Here is the second of the six teachings. God is our father and we are his children. And because there is a father-child resemblance, since he is holy, we should be holy. Chapter 3, verse 1. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God and has not yet appeared as yet what we shall be. We know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. And no one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God has appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot go on sinning because he's born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. If there were three major tests in 1 John, one is a test of belief. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God's son come in the flesh? And the second test is divided into two. Both of them are pragmatic. One is, do I practice righteousness? The other is, do I love my brother? So one is a belief test, another is a practice test divided in two. So in a sense, you could say there are three tests. The false teachers should easily fail these tests in the minds of these believers. The believers should easily pass these tests. The hard part is, not one of us reads this without feeling nervous. And that's a good thing, because we should feel nervous when we hear God's expectations of us. 
His expectation is we're not going to rebel. We're not going to sin. We're not going to go our own way independently, but we're going to follow after him, love him, and love those whom he has saved. And he writes in such bold terms that he causes us to say, do I pass this test? And if you say to yourself, I'm nervous, that's exactly where he wants you. And he'll calm you down, especially by the time you get to the end of the book. Chapter 5 is all about, like, did I scare you to death? Good. Now let me calm you down and help you know that, yes, you really are saved. But this is what I expect of you. I expect obedience of you. You might say this is ridiculous stuff. No one actually lives this way. Well, I'll tell you what I'm like as a father. I will say to my children, no, you will not do that. Now, am I saying, oh, I'm expecting, you know, uh, maybe 50% obedience in this. And uh, if you disobey, I'm not going to disown you as my son and all that kind of stuff. (laughs) That's not how I live my life as a father. If I say you will not, that's what I mean. You will not. So which of these sins are we supposed to say, well, a little poison doesn't harm me at all. A little sin isn't going to ruin my life. Ask your wife how often you can go be with a mistress and have that advance your marriage. If you said to her, I used to visit her twice a week. Now I only visit her once a week. Is she going to say, that is great progress? No! That's ridiculous. He wants obedience. He wants love. He wants relationship with us. And that's why he's speaking so absolutely. You should watch the commentators go crazy over this when he says in verse 9, no one who is born of God... New American Standard uses an interpretive phrase here when it says practices sin. The actual reading more literally would be no one who's born of God does sin, present tense, because his seed abides in him, meaning God has actually placed within us through his Holy Spirit divine You're going to have to tell me if it's DNA or not. I'll I'll leave that up to you, whether it's actually DNA. But a divine seed, which is spiritual, I believe, in the work of the Holy Spirit within you, that is so changing that you would then act like your father because he is your father, spiritually speaking. And actually, he did create you as well, which would make you a child of God just in the sense of creation. But he has a special relationship with you because he's placed his spirit within you. And he says, if I place my spirit within you, how could you go on sinning? Now, please, I tell you, stop being rocket science scientists and just take him at his word. Listen to all the excuses these commentators make regarding these absolute statements. Because they say he can't possibly mean sinless perfection. So some say, well, what he's talking about here is the Christian can't commit the worst kinds of sin. He can commit all the ordinary run-of-the-mill sins, just not the worst kinds of sin. 
hey, friends, King David killed somebody because he slept with his wife and he didn't want anybody to find out because she was pregnant. So he killed her husband. Is that the worst kind of sin or not? Or they say what's considered a sin in an unbeliever is not considered a sin in a believer. That is the most stupid thing I've ever heard. Or they say, well, you're two natures, right? Okay, your old nature can sin, your new nature can't. For goodness sakes, that's what the heretics are saying. The heretics are saying, you're two people, a spirit being and a physical being, and what you do in your physical being doesn't affect your spirit being, so go, out, go have a great time. No, it can't possibly be that answer. Someone says, well, John is just speaking in the ideal. He doesn't actually expect anyone to do this. Then why say that? If he doesn't expect you to do it, why say that? Some people say, well, John is a preacher. Preachers exaggerate. There's just an overemphasis for passionate effect. I wouldn't listen to a preacher who's exaggerating and doesn't mean what he says. Or they say, well, it's true only when you are living in the sphere of Christ. And it's only true in proportionate degrees. Or some people would say, we'll just let that go. Some people will say, when you're abiding in Christ, this is true. When you are not abiding in Christ, it's not true. So he's saying, abide in Christ, then you'll obey. But when you're not abiding in Christ... I guess it doesn't happen. But that's not what he's asking of us. He's asking us to stop sinning. Can't possibly be that. Wesley divided sins into groupings. And he had a class called willful or deliberate sins. And he says, these are the ones that we're successful in. And he had a whole nother class of sins which were accidental, not on purpose. I guess that would be considered second-degree murder instead of first-degree murder. Explain that to the wife of the deceased. Oh, you were in passionate rage when you killed my husband. Oh, I guess you're excused on that basis. No! He doesn't categorize sin. If, If there's one thing John does, he says sin is sin. And he's not merely talking about habitual or persistent sin. He's talking about sin. Please take him at his word when he straight out tells us what he wants of us. He says, he is our father. We are his children. We will be like him when we see him as he is. When my mother was dying and my oldest children were little, little kids, when she got close to death, she was dying of breast cancer that spread throughout her entire body. She says, When I am gone, it's okay to be sad because you miss me, but don't be sad for me because I have always longed to see my Savior face to face. And that's exactly what he says here in verse 2, where he says, when we go to be with him, when we see him, we will be glorified and every taint of sin removed. And this problem we have with our fleshly nature will be gone because he will 
confirm us in righteousness and we will never sin again and we'll be holy before him forever and ever. We will be like him for we will see him as he is. And she says, don't grieve for me because I've always longed to see my Savior. My son Stephen, who's here, was just a little guy. I was tucking him in in bed at night And we were praying together, and he said, when they bury Grandma, they're going to put her body in the grave, aren't they? And I said, yes. And he says, her eyes are going to be in her body, aren't they? And I said, yes. And he said, well, how will she see Jesus? That's where you love being a theologian. That's where you love pragmatic answers to real-life questions and to say she will see Jesus with spiritual sight and someday he will resurrect her body and restore her as a physical being again and she will spend eternity in fellowship with him forever and ever. He was thinking clearly as to what it means to be a person who loves Jesus so much that she wanted to obey him. Lest you think that sin isn't a big deal, he straight out says in verse 4, sin is lawlessness. And grammatically, you could reverse those. Lawlessness is sin, sin is lawlessness. The very first night, we were over in housekeeping, and we had our fire on beyond 10 o'clock. And the campground host came over, very nice, very nice. And they just exhorted us, you know, people are going to bed now and uh, we don't want to cause too much air pollution and it'd be really nice if you'd be willing to put your fire out now and all that kind of stuff. So we dutifully put our fire out. So that has caused an interesting discussion in our family every other night since, since the fire is at its most beautiful at 10 p.m. at night. (laughs) As to whose time are we going by? And my wife, the one who obeys First John, says 10 o'clock is 10 o'clock everywhere in Yosemite, and it's time to put the fire out. And those of us who say 65 really means 70 on the highway are saying, what's the difference between 10 and 10.15? They haven't come by to check yet. And she's, she could straight out say, well, sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness is sin. We should not try to get away with what God doesn't want us to get away with. He says, little children, let no one deceive you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous. He's been changed by God. He is righteous. The Son of God has appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. In verse 9, he says, Since you have been born of God, you should not be practicing sin. I think he's stressing in the present tense with the verb to do there, saying it should not be characteristic of your life. If there are mistakes along the way, he wrote this the way in in 1 John 2, 1, I'm writing these things to you may not sin, but if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. So it should be the exception, not the rule. It should be a lifestyle of obedience with a mistake here and there in which you confess that sin and restore that family forgiveness as he's graciously done. 
But he says, the one born of God can't go on sinning because he has placed his seed in us and he is born of God. Just take him at his word and live in obedience. Ask him for the empowerment of the Spirit to resist these temptations. Ask him to help you live a life that is pleasing to him because that is his will. If we pray according to his will, we know he hears us and he gives us these requests. Do you think that if you ask God to help you resist this temptation, he would not provide the way of escape also? 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. Of course he'll provide the way of escape. You won't see it until you choose it. Choose to accept the way of escape and he will open that escape and you will obey and you will please him. And you'll be the one who practices righteousness. You might say to yourself, how can I tell if I'm I'm succeeding at this? Verse 10. Again, he straight out says it's not rocket science. It's obvious. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Father, we come before you and we ask on behalf of the promises of your word that you would help us. This certainly is difficult for us and it causes us fear and trepidation to think of our status in relationship with you. I I pray, Father, that no one would leave this conference this week without be certain of their relationship with you. Thank you for allowing the Apostle John to be so straightforward and so honest. May we be straightforward and honest with ourselves. As we ask the Holy Spirit to help us, may the Holy Spirit reveal within us the truth as to our relationship with you. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.